This is a HeadGum Podcast. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We watched The Last Temptation of Christ, not The Passion of the Christ. Almost said it. And we're going to talk about it today on Good Christian Fun. Are you familiar with like Calvinism as a concept? That's like your uh, lecture, like once you start it's like teaching. My well, us. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to GCF. I'm Kevin. I'm Caroline. And we're here to have, for the 102nd time, good Christian fun. I'm going to milk that centennial for all it's worth. Yeah, I'm going to say, for the 103rd (laughs) time, as if it's meaningful, good Christian fun is the podcast where we talk about Christian pop culture, music, movies, entertainment, made for, made by, made to. Christians, or sometimes Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader. That's right. Uh, But we're not here to make you go to church or to proselytize to you or to preach at you or to bash your beliefs unless your beliefs are bad. (laughs) (laughs) Hurtful, we'll say. Shameful. (laughs) Dumb. Talking Marianne Williams. No, I shouldn't say that. Should I? I don't know enough about it. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know either. I can't make a call. Let's just say, I'm not going to touch that one. (laughs) The 10-foot jade crystal. Crystal? Yep, that's right. Uh, It's good Christian fun. The topic for today is not Passion of the Christ. It's It's the good one. It's the last temptation of Christ. Would we ever do Passion of the Christ? I have... Uh, less than zero desire to. Same. Because you of, desire to? I'll, I'll do it. Oh. oh hell yeah, I'll okay. do it. Oh, well, yeah. then, then we're doing it. Right. We're completing the trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that's true. Yeah, because we start- the trifecta of- <laughs> It's possible with our movies. guest, who's yet to be named, uh-huh. uh, did do Left Behind last time she was on the show, and is doing Less Temptation of Christ now, and maybe to complete it. So we're going from like the worst kind of movie to the best kind of movie to like maybe a like- Ooh, it's made a we lot of money. We don't even know where we're at. Yeah, yeah, just genreless. The director. only way I'll do it is if we rent out a movie theater and invite like 500 Christians. Oh yeah, bust in the us. Christians yeah. and yeah. tell them they're gonna see Inside Out too. <laughs> Inside Out too. In a way, it's a hard issue. <laughs> this time, it's a hard issue. I had a Christian today tell me I want to watch Inside Out with you again today. Oh, yeah. So it is a Christian movie. Oh, okay. Is what I'm saying. Okay. See? Yeah, you miss there's a deleted scene where they show the hole in her heart where God is supposed to be. Yeah, and it's shaped like Jesus. It's crazy. <laughs> it's really gross. Uh, and but- Bing Bong's like, trust the Lord. <laughs> Bing Bong kind of becomes like Larry the Cucumber. He's like, well, the gospel says that we're all reconciled through grace. Uh, But Last Temptation of Christ, 
I'm tempted to introduce our guest right now. Sorry. Nice. No, I liked it. It was good. <laughs> Friends, she is a writer of Vox, a film critic, a television critic. You can check out her podcast, Prime Time. Friends, give it the hell up for Emily, Emily Vanderwerf. Yay. I caught myself. You did it. I was thinking about that today. I've been saying ladies and gentlemen, and I want to start saying friends. I like to say ladies, gentlemen, non-binary fellow travelers. Hey. I saw a Rhea Butcher tweet that said, I identify as the and in ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Identify as the and? Yeah. Emily, thanks for joining us on the show. I'm so glad to be here, and I stepped on my favorite song of all time. I Life just started talking about stuff. You. Everybody shut up. Goes on and and sing. Sing. A song and sing. Again. Again. How many times have you heard this song? Never quite. In your life. Wrap my arms around that. Those lyrics. Do you think this is the last song we sing when we end the podcast? <laughs> on stage die. as a ribbon dance? <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. Emily, thanks for joining us so much. I'm really glad to be here. Welcome on back. the show. Welcome yeah. back. OG, you are on episode 9 or 10 yeah, of the yeah, show. Yeah. Oh mm-hmm. my Left gosh. Behind. 2017. So early. Back yeah. when Caroline was doing the intros. You did the intro for that Left Behind episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, when I, oh, my like scripted intro? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Then we were like, too much. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember is my favorite line from a uh, Caroline Ely intro for the podcast is for Prince of Egypt. She did say, and then Moses said, let my people go to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> so think about that a lot. That's nice. Well, Emily, usually this is the part of the show where we do the testimony, mm-hmm. talk about your history of faith, religion, things of that nature. Uh, you already did that on your last episode. Yeah, nothing's changed since then. Well, I was going to bring up okay, there's cool. there's one change on. I've noticed <laughs> in that you did get a haircut since the last time I saw you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the opposite. That I've been growing it out. Uh, but yeah. But it's been getting cut along the way. Yeah, along the way. <laughs> you change your hair is what I should have yeah, said to be more exactly. accurate. New exactly. glasses. Yeah. New glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have this outfit the last time I saw no. you. No. This is new. It's My different. outfit is slamming. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I wanted to ask you what's been the most fun. The most fun. I love dressing like this yes i'm wearing so i'm going to describe this for the listeners Please i'm wearing do. kind of a red sundress and some gray tights and uh boots that came from spain that i bought a, at a going out of business sale in san luis Obispo. Yeah. so um but yeah i like presenting kind of hyper feminine the clothes like, are yeah, yeah are mm-hmm. great like, are you trying on a few different kinds of personas like have you done goth emily no, I don't basic think I could, Emily. I, I'm oh. I'm I'm basic Emily all the time. Like I I so I wasn't sure what my aesthetic was going to be, mm. and like my friend who's really into fashion was like, "You need to figure that out." Oh, I was basically in what we call guy mode right up until I came out. By the way, everybody, I'm a trans woman. That's yeah, we should back it up. We should back it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I realized that those not following the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to tell that story, oh, God, you story in yeah. your own words. Yeah. yeah, but my my. So I was in basically guy mode right up until I came out in an essay in Vox.com. But my friend was like, you need to find your aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And in February or March, I took a flight somewhere and I watched the movie A Simple Favor, the greatest film oh of God. all time. Yes. Hey. And Some great clothes in that. Um, everybody in that movie loves Blake Lively's look and it's great. But like Anna Kendrick is like coolest mom in the fourth grade. And I'm like, okay, there we go. That's it. We found it. <laughs> That's yours. We aesthetic. zeroed in. 
There we go. Florals. Yeah. Colors. Exactly. Great. So you describe yourself as kind of a scrappy little nobody in that sense. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm just I'm just uh, pulling it together. Uh, got my first Tony nomination at 12. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. Really who I am. Little yeah. nobody kind of who got their first Tony nomination at 12. Anna Kendrick's autobiography, about Scrappy that. Little Nobody. I read it. Yeah. My brother gave that to me. So uh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the okay. story and like the journey that led here. This is the first time we've had someone on with your particular story or with your particular kind of story okay. on the show. All right. So we'd love to hear it from your perspective. You mean the first time you've had somebody from South Dakota on? That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, South Dakota is a well, state. Strange with- land. We did have this guy named Todd on a long time ago. <laughs> who's from South Dakota. Oh, he's a... F- fucking dick what <laughs> oh that's my no. friend <laughs> well, i haven't seen in a long time where'd he go uh actually i do have to ask this because i went out to lunch with kevin in like february march mm-hmm. it was earlier this year yeah and like this was a stage where i was just when i went out with people i just was like by the way i'm trans this is happening etc yeah so i told kevin even though kevin and i have met once and text after I was on the show the last time I texted him literally all the time to be like I want to be on this episode I want to be on this episode <laughs> and like he stopped responding <laughs> did I truly oh shit this reflects poorly on me yeah. no I, I I was really annoying but like one of the ones that I said was last temptation and mm-hmm. here we are here we are so, oh, uh, but I told you that and then I was like did you tell Caroline I'm wondering you can be honest did I? I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. That's because fine. I knew I, Caroline would be sensitive and discreet. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I believe I told you you could because it was this was like my way to angle to get back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> like so. The second I leave here, I'm like, ah, that's over. Um, <laughs> Drop it. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Well, I think you only told me too because I knew that we had booked you. Again, and I think he right. knew I was going to see you again. Yeah, we were thinking about scheduling and, and scheduling for around this time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I felt like, I, honestly, that lunch, and it was, you know, one of those things where adult friendships in 2019, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. we met in 2017, and then we've just been like tweeting and texting for two years since then. But it was one of those things that I sincerely and genuinely felt very honored to be let into that and yeah. let into that part of your life and your story yeah. and to be trusted with that. Meant, meant a great deal. Well, I knew me. you weren't. I knew you weren't going to spread it all over, you know, the world. Um, I also was at a place where if you had just randomly outed me on Twitter, if I had been wrong about that, I would have been like, and eh, whatever. Like, <laughs> like I, I came out in March of 2018. I came out publicly in June of 2019. That's okay. a long time to that live with, like time. knowing who you are. And now that I have friends who are in that window, especially like friends who are in the media, because now they all talk to me like they all want my opinion, which is fine. (laughs) But like now that they're in that window, I'm like, oh, yeah, just get it over with. But like I really I was worried about so many things I didn't have to worry about. And then some things I didn't really worry about ended up being like much larger. And and we'll talk about some of that. But I want to circle back to what you said about adult friendships, Um, because I've come to kind of think of. The period from the summer of 2016 when I uh, started working on this pilot that my wife and I are still sort of um, in the process of trying to sell. Hollywood, call us. Um, Bring, bring. (laughs) (laughs) It's Hollywood here. Uh, I sound like this. (laughs) Ew, Hollywood sucks. I wouldn't do a deal with them. (laughs) I I, I promise that I'm not, and I'm not saying what I'm about to say to embarrass either of you, but like when I was in that that zone from there to when I came out. I was kind of in a like 
a zone where I was like, the real me was like knocking at the back of my brain, on the door at the back of my brain and being like, please pay, pay, pay attention to me. Please just let me out to like hang out. And one of the things that happened to me in this space was I would see women around my age or, you know, a little bit younger or whatever. And I would just be like, oh my God, they're the coolest. Because like functionally my brain this part of my brain got arrested at 13. Like this is a metaphor. It's not really true, but like there's a part of my brain that got arrested at 13 at puberty when it should have been developing like other women's brains. So like the first time and like, it would just look around at other women and be like, Oh my God, she's the best. She is the coolest. <laughs> so the first, last time I was here, I was like, yeah, Kevin's nice. He, he has had several hit podcasts. I really liked hanging out with Kevin. I would hang out with Kevin again and we could have a very nice male friendship. But isn't Caroline great? Isn't she cool? Wow. This As is someone a, who's patently uncool, that is really nice to hear. I would take it. I mean, this is most guests takeaway, I think. <laughs> no. No. You're great, Kevin. And I've always, I've enjoyed oh. the times that we've hung out. Well, I appreciate it. Oh, Thank that you. means a lot to me. That's so nice to yeah. say. Thank so, so yeah, like it, it's weird because that was again about six months before I came out because I was like, yeah, fall 2017. And it was like, it was just this persistent sort of drumbeat of like um, all these little things that were accumulating to the point where when I read this Daniel Orberg interview where he was like, oh, my whole life I'd felt like a brain in a jar and I just assumed everybody felt that way. And I was like, oh, f fuck, that's me. Um and I'd, of course, been suspicious about my gender all that time. But also I was like, I'm just, you know, I'm going to put it under a bushel. Uh, I'm, you know, and not look at it because mm -hmm. I got to let this other light shine. Um, and then I just, it just, it just blew the door open. I just was like, I can't ignore this anymore. I need to do something about it. And it's been wonderful and wild and terrifying. Yeah. Well, I was even re-listening back to our last episode we did with uh -huh. you. And, and you're part of the guestimony where you were talking about different points of inflection in your faith. And one of them was people being unkind to you in grade school or making fun of you or calling you gay because mm -hmm. it was the nineties and everyone was stupid. And then the Ellen moment kind of coinciding with all that. If you had to like retell parts of that, what, what part of that would you add now being fully who you are? So I came out to my wife and it took her about 36 hours to be like, I'm okay with this. We're going to stay together, all of that. And her idea for coming out to my parents was that I should say, my parents had suspected I was gay for my entire adolescence. And then I wasn't. And I think they gave each other a little high five and were like, we did it. Um, <sighs> were they openly suspecting it? Like, or you just think they were No, like, I just know from the ways they tried to steer me away from, you know, mm. like I had a, I didn't have a great Steve Urkel impression, but I was working on it. And my dad was like, people will think you're gay. And I'm like, because I'm doing a Steve Urkel Steve impression. Steve Urkel is a like Steve Urkel's for everybody. It's a man's man. <laughs> yes. Steve mm. It was a not unkind. Like they were, they were doing a kind thing in yeah. a not terribly kind way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like they thought they were protecting me. So my wife's idea for coming out to them was for me to say, bad news you were right, I'm gay. Good news, I'm staying with Libby. <laughs> like, see if they could just figure it out from there. Yeah, no. <laughs> just do the math. Oh, that's great. How do you feel like, because um, we, we were texting before about like the way it might be interacting with your faith and stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems like you don't have that many complicated feelings about still identifying somewhat or at all as a Christian, as a person of faith. How has your identity, because we so often talk about your identity is in Christ, your identity is in blah, blah, blah. But how do you feel like 
your identity in whatever like religious or faith context yeah. has been informed by this identity now. I have so much more faith now. So a friend of mine is a Lutheran minister in Denmark. When I said that on, I have a, I have two Twitter accounts. I have my main Twitter account where I do all my um, Emily Vanderwerf shit posting. And then I have another Twitter account where I'm a little bit more sincere and talk about transition stuff. And like most people, a lot of people follow me on both. The people who need to know kind of follow me on both. Um, and I posted on the secret account back when it was still a secret. I said, I am so much more into church. I'm so much more into God. I believe in this so much more. I'm dedicated to my church in a way I haven't been ever in my life. And my minister friend was like, there's this concept in theology of like, you can't find God until you found home. Uh, and I don't remember what he said it was, but it was something from his particular branch of theology. So somebody out there can find it, I'm sure. Right. And uh, he was just like, you found home. So now you can find God. And like my wife I'm not, she's not Christian. She's still like agnostic, whatever. But like, she now is like much more comfortable in church. Like some of that is we found an LGBT affirming church. It's the one I talked about the last time on this show, but you know, we go there. A lot of the minister staff is uh, LGBT. A lot of the congregants are LGBT. Like it has really improved my life, except for the way that every sermon ends with, and that's the T sis. Um, that's your uh, grace to you and also with you. Yeah. Yeah. The T is also with you. Yes. Um, but yeah, like, it, and that is a thing that I'm really struggling with um, with my own family um, because they're very Christian, but don't see a way that there's a Venn diagram overlap between Christian and trans or lesbian or bi or whatever. That has been, you know, it hasn't been a source of friction, but like I sent my parents a book by a trans Christian that was about transitioning and biblical support for it and all of this stuff, because the Bible doesn't really say anything about trans stuff. Like there is stuff in there that you can interpret as being anti-gay. I would never do that. Like that's not how I roll. That's not how my theology rolls, but I get why people read those verses that way. Trans stuff just kind of isn't there. Mm. And yet it's become this huge right wing issue. And yeah, my, my parents read it and were like, well, we just don't believe in uh, people twisting the, the scripture to say whatever they want. I'm like, what? What, what do you what? think you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, that's a thing we've been hitting on recently is like kind of that response from a lot of people who have a more traditional perspective mm -hmm. about scriptural stuff of like, well, to make it say what you think it says, it's, it's a tap dance. You have to do gymnastics to get yeah. it that way. It's like, well, dog, like any, which way you put it, it's a tap dance. Cause it's 2019. And like, just like doing the one for one analog of like ancient Israel is exactly the same as 21st century America. There's no difference. Yeah. Marriage works the same way. Property works at like, so kind of picking and choosing which side you want to find on that it, it it always is actually more up to your own individual discernment than people think it is i'm totally willing to buy all the evangelical stuff though if it turns out that donald trump who is signaling hard that he's the antichrist lately just like if it turns out that he is and amazon wants to put like things in our hands so we can pay for stuff if they're the beast i'm just gonna be like okay this is great at least it'll be quick you yeah. know like we'll get it done with it'll be two days 
I'm gonna prime joke. He was uh, tweeting something about Nikolai today on Twitter. Oh, I kind of always no. thought the Antichrist would be really hot. Nikolai, great guy. <laughs> yeah, terrific. <laughs> Nikolai, what? I know him. <laughs> I know him. Old no, friend. I, love the beast. Love the horse sitting on it. When, All good. When I was like 11 or 12, I was like, I'm gonna write a work of end times prophecy, like a novel of end times. And like my yes. my premise was that the antichrist rose out of like a christian church and like the christians all supported him and fooled you and like that was going to be the twist at the end of the first book was that he was the antichrist and everybody told me it was too ridiculous of a premise that that would never happen (laughs) that the christians would have too much discernment and look where we are now everybody my book was good your book was (laughs) correct and right how generous of you to uh send literature to your parents in an effort to like build that bridge for them that's that's really yeah that is you know i i'm that is a relationship that is has been strained it's not broken you know there's not anything wrong there but they're older and grew up in a time and a place that is it was really hard for them to conceive of a time and place in which someone could come out as gay come out as transgender come out as um, having had sex before marriage and not have it be a small town defining scandal. And here's the here's the thing: they they're kind of right, because when I came out, I got all these messages from people in my hometown on Facebook, on Twitter, or whatever, and they would write to me and they would be like, uh, "What they always said was, I don't care what anybody else says. I support you, and my family supports you, and we love you." And I was like, "That's great, wonderful. What's everybody else saying? Can we maybe?" <laughs> talk about that like just just run it down for me yeah just give me give me that give me the brief exactly who said it and how (laughs) where they live yeah exactly (laughs) but like also i live in la and like well i think if like you interact with me for more than a couple minutes you will figure out i'm a trans woman if i'm just walking down the street and you see me out of the corner of your eye i just look like a tall white lady and like that has taylor Swift? Is yes, it's me. <laughs> oh it's God. me, Taylor Cornelius Swift. <laughs> um, so like in LA, I just like I kind of blend in in a way that like if I were still living in my small hometown, I have talked to a lot of trans people who live in the middle of the country in small towns. And it's just like they're not sure they're ever going to be able to be out and be publicly out or transition or do anything. And like you don't have to get that far away from Los Angeles for that to be the case. Like I've heard from people in California who in small town, California who are like, I just don't think I can do it. Yeah. I'm sure like orange County is brutal for a lot of that. Yeah. So like Temecula. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that's been kind of weighing on me is that like they weren't wrong. You know, they, they, they were right. They just weren't the context they were seeing it through was not because the context I'm seeing it through is literally like everything in my life has improved. But my relationship with them and my relationship with them, again, isn't dead. It's not bad or anything like that. It's just like evolving in a way that we're figuring out. Like I, my sister and I used to be really great friends in high school. And then we kind of, I don't want to say like fell out. We had like, we like, we like lost touch. We just weren't Mm -hmm. people. And now, you know, she's in my corner a hundred percent. Like we're, we're friends in a way that we haven't been in our whole adult life. Like I have... I've made so many friends in a way that I haven't before I came out. My marriage is stronger. My, um, I think my, my professional writing has gotten stronger. Like my, this is kind of cynical to say, but I have gotten certain career opportunities that I don't think I would have gotten before I came out after I've came out after I came out. There we go. Um, (laughs) because people are like, 
I don't even think it's the cynical thing of like people are now more interested in what I have to say, but that like what I have to say is no longer fighting its way through like 15 layers of false, uh, false statements and like lying to myself and lying to other people. Like I can just like be upfront and be like who I am. That's not to say everything's been great. Like there's been, you know, Twitter trolls and some, uh, relationships are, some friendships are not as great as they used to be and things like that. But on the whole, like on the whole, my life is so much better. So yeah, the, the hypothetical world where I never left my small town in South Dakota, it's probably a lot worse, but here I'm mm-hmm. fine. And maybe yeah. like the, the years that you now live in like a joyful life are yeah. will just build an evidence to anyone who may have doubted it. Like your parents who think like, well, it's just going to be harder. You'd be like, no, look, it's literally so much fuller in, yeah. in a big way. And like the thing is, I've had people tell me that about every decision I've made in my life. Sometimes my parents, sometimes other people. Like when I was like, I'm going to be a writer, people were like, you're never going to make it as a writer, you know? And then Mm -hmm. I did. And like (laughs) um, when I was like, oh, I'm going to quit my job at this newspaper that I hate and be a TV critic. People were like, that's not going to work. And then like it did. Like I obviously come from a position of a lot of privilege. Like I'm a white person in America. I have some degree of money to fall back on. I have a lot of things that other people don't have, but like I do have a tendency to set my mind to things and have them turn out. Okay. So like when I finally was ready to come out and I do think like I, I, one of the classic things about being trans and coming out later in life and by later in life, I mean, after about 14, um, is you're like, well, what if I had had all those years to not have to be someone I wasn't? But literally, I think I had to wait until I was 37. I came out at 37. I'm, I'm 38 now. Um, I think I had to wait that long because otherwise, um, you know, I wouldn't have been ready or my marriage would have fallen apart because my wife was dealing with her own sexuality sort of issues, issues with her own sexuality. I'll just say, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wouldn't have had the kind of, um, financial independence that I have. So like I have all of these things that had to be in place. And then my brain was like, okay, we'll open the door and let the real you through. And now it's time for you to deal with it. And of course I met Caroline too. And that like really helped. That was really the straw that broke the back. Yeah. Kind of the final chapter. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to hear more about your church too. And because we, I mean, we've had similar experience and well, it's not similar in a lot of ways, but it's similar in just feeling like, Oh, being at this church and being in a place where I, I know for a fact, everyone is, is basically getting to be exactly how they want, or at least able to like, present or sexually express themselves however they want is uh, such a fuller <laughs> experience of God and, and church and everything. And I, I love that um, they exist and I think complicate it for other Christians too, mm-hmm. because I think it's easier for Christians to be like, well, you're liberal and you're gay and you're non-believer. So of course you hate church. Like you just yeah. have a, a vendetta against it. But we're like, no, I love it. I know. I'm still well, here. One of the most powerful testimonies is just continuing to exist. Yeah. In that space. And they have to like figure out, well, if you really, you say you love Jesus and I have to like absorb that. I have to respect that on some level and it mm-hmm. can, it can complicate things in a great way for everybody. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's kind of a beautiful, I was thinking about this idea too, about kind of like the non-affirming scripts for how evangelical churches handle 
people who they would classify as struggling with their sexual orientation or like homosexual, like, like those scripts are pretty down pat and people know how to communicate stuff that's pretty ugly in a yeah. pretty loving sheen or gloss. Mm-hmm. But for the transgender community, it kind of just like blows it up in some ways yeah. because it's like, okay, well, there's no verses about this. Mm. Okay. And there's no, like, how do we, it, and, and because it feels like, even though it's not new, it feels new mm-hmm. to a lot of people. So a lot of people almost feel like they're playing catch up and, and they're doing, you know, they're trying to fire shots across the bow with like the bathroom bill in North Carolina. But for the most part, like on that level, the existence of transgender people who are faithful in in any fashion in the church does just like yeah blow it all up to some yeah. degree for people well i had a really good mentor in this regard because my one of my best friends in the whole world who listens to this podcast so i'm <gasps> going to say her name and Shout she's going to just be like excited she was the first person i came out to outside of my therapist because I needed wow. to, I needed to say I'm trans to someone, and then if it was wrong, I knew I could just take it back and be like, "Nope, sorry, uh, just kidding." But her name is Amy Whipple. Um, she's one of my greatest friends in the whole world. Everyone should follow her on Twitter at it's Amy Whipple. Amy Whipple, um, yeah, blow up Lift her spot. Her up. <laughs> a nice friend. But she is, um, she is a lesbian and is very active in her church, actually works at her church. Um, And she just like was always like, oh, you can be Christian and and LGBT. She just let that, that was just part of how she approached the world. And like, I've known her for almost 10 years now. And like, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, of course. Of course you can be Christian and LGBT. Like Amy is the best Christian I know. And she's gonna be very embarrassed at me saying that. Um, But but yeah, and like, like, yeah, it just, it, it really kind of blew my mind because there was this, this idea that like, um, you know, those two things were not compatible. Um, and actually you bringing up the, the idea that, that, that transness has sort of blown a lot of Christians minds. I remember in the mid two thousands when the, um, uh, the marriage equality bills were, uh, or rather the anti-gay marriage amendments were passing all over the country. Pat Robertson on the 700 club yeah no 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 caroline no you can't say that (laughs) big ups um he said that there are some people who have in essence he didn't describe call it gender dysphoria but he like described it as gender dysphoria and he was like it's probably best for them to transition and maybe a lot of these like gay people have like need to just transition to be (laughs) women which is not the right answer but like he's like so they'll be straight kind of yeah way but (laughs) Yeah. Oh wow. Um, Wait, but, is Pat Robertson a progressive king? <laughs> well, now he's not. Like now he he's yeah. points. Um, that. That's so. Wow, I've never heard that before. But yeah, and like that, and then like of course, um, marriage equality became the law of the land. You know, to the degree where like as much as you know the evangelical elements within the Trump administration would love to re overturn marriage equality, like it's probably going to be a step too far for the vast majority of Americans. Like. Whereas restricting trans rights is still well within their grasp. Mm. So, yay. It almost feels like, uh, and correct me if this feels too crass, but it almost feels like in some way the trans community is has kind of become in some mainstream spaces what a lot of the queer, what a majority of the queer community was, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And in the terms of like, it feels like every 
old comedian over the age of 45 has a chunk about like Ugh. trans people are weird right they do, they do? what yeah well we hear they talk about the new <laughs> oh, Chappelle special on Netflix mm, no, no. unnecessary yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah so it does feel like a different kind of target in that sense because it is so like uh complicating to people or confuses the binaries to people in that way yeah and it is there is this like there is an obsession with and this is not just among Christians, but it is especially among Christians. There is an obsession with genitalia that is really strange that like, and I think it's because when the baby comes out and we look at it and we're like, oh, that's a boy, that's a girl. Or if the baby has ambiguous genitalia, like that becomes like a source of real, um, that in the past, that was like a source of real um, stress and anxiety, like, oh, boy or girl. And like, we have to make the choice right now. We can't just raise it as neither. And like, obviously you could have like one of the like really interesting things about this is that like to a real degree, we have invented such a strict gender binary because the English language lacks a robust pronoun for that not male or female. And like we've, we've turned they into that in a really great way. And I'm glad that we did that, but like it's created this, this either or situation that trans people in general really kind of uh, uh, break. And like, if you sort of, if you sort of fetishize little bitty babies, like evangelical culture does. And by fetishize, I mean, almost idolize them. Maybe that's a better word, like place Mm -hmm. them on a pedestal where it's like, I, you guys have probably talked about this on the show, but there was a pastor in Louisiana, I think who wrote an amazing blog post or Facebook post about how, it's really easy to agitate for the unborn and it's really hard to agitate for people who are here, who are imperfect, who are yes, I read this. difficult. Yeah. I thought that was so beautifully and put. I, I just, I had never thought of it that yeah, way. Cause the unborn don't fight you on your beliefs yet. Yep. They don't have, they don't have politics that yeah. you can postulate about. There's nothing like that. And they're, they're innocent in mm-hmm. your head and all those yeah, things. They're so not cancelable. So it's so easy to be like, yeah, let's get them. Cause potentially they'll, they'll be on my team when they're yeah. here. But yeah, yeah, but once you have a real full fledged being who maybe doesn't even like you. Yeah. But one of the things that made acceptance of marriage equality come so quickly was there were a lot of gay people, you know, that people just didn't know about. And if you suddenly your neighbor two doors down was gay and his boyfriend had moved in and they were just a couple like anybody else, it was a lot harder for you to hear those horror stories about like uh, gay people in the, the locker room seducing you or whatever. And like it was a lot harder to hear that and take it seriously and like that's that's what's happening with trans people it's a little bit moving a little bit more slowly than i think i mean than i would like but i think there are also probably fewer trans people in general but you also look at like generation z and so many of them identify as some form of non-binary some form of gender queer some form of whatever of agender um a binary all of these different terms and like here's the thing we are coming up on a whole generation of trans kids who got the proper care and treatment at like 11, 12, when like they're going to be, you're never going to be able to tell the difference from a cisgender person without like a chromosome test. And that's going to flip this whole thing on its ear, this whole debate. Obviously there are kids who are not getting that treatment, but they have the internet now. I didn't like, I had the internet when I was a teenager, but I, I didn't, you know, have, um, I just knew I liked to go in chat rooms and pretend to be a girl. I thought that that was just like, oh, that's just a fun thing everybody's doing. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
today's kids, like they have all of these resources that they can sort of turn to. So even like a, a teenage trans guy reached out to me after my piece came out and he was like, my parents are never going to understand. Um, they're never going to support me, but I just, you know, I think if I can make it to college, I'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, you know, if you start transitioning at 18, whatever, you're losing maybe a couple inches of height you would have gained. And like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it is such a, going to be such a different world in 10 years. Um, even, especially as like technology advances and as these things become easier to do, like there, you know, there are going to be things like womb transplants and all of these sort of uterus transplants, I should say, and all of mm, these sorts yeah. of things that will like complicate this even more. So we're in this weird little window when I, I really like the administration is really trying to essentially legislate trans identities out of existence. But I just, I don't think they might succeed short term, long term. I just don't see how I, it's possible. Yeah, like there's like a wave coming. Yeah. There's no way. There's obviously a lot of bathroom panic in sort of this discussion, especially among Christians. Like, when I, in 2016, the state of South Dakota, where I grew up, uh, tried to pass a, actually the legislature briefly passed a trans bathroom bill banning trans people from bathrooms. And the governor finally vetoed it because he met, literally, this is what happened. He met three trans people and was like, oh, they're just people. And he's like, no. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> he was a Republican. And like these trans people went to his office and were like, you know, this is unenforceable. You know, this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Look at us. We shop at Target. And he was like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, sure. Um, <laughs> He's like, you go to the dollar section? But okay. I wrote a piece about how much I struggled with hearing that my state was doing this. And just as a really good cis ally, like I was really concerned about that. And like I had a big fight with my dad about it. Someone, he and I don't discuss politics because we have very different views on things. And like, but we had a big fight about it. And like, he admitted the bill was unenforceable. He admitted all this stuff, but he was like, well, you don't want, I don't want sex perverts in the bathroom with little girls. And I was like, that's not what's happening. You know, there are a handful of cases of trans sex offenders, but there are sex offenders in every group of people you want to point to. So, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I don't know why I started talking about bathroom panic. Oh, I do. Um, like I walk into a bathroom and nobody notices me, you know, like like, it's just like what I do now. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I think that people don't realize how many trans people they've actually encountered in the wild because the stereotype of a trans person is still a guy with a beard and a dress. And like, he's not even quote unquote passable, which is a word that's very fraught with different implications in the trans community. And I apologize for using it, but I'm trying to come at this from a cis perspective. But like, that's just not the case. Like, Trans people are all across the gender binary. They're all, they, you know, sort of present in all manner of fashion. And they are probably in your church right now. One of the best Christians I know is, her name is Kiri Ann Ryan Stewart. Uh, she's on Twitter at Oh Hey Kiri. She has a podcast called, I think, Oh Hey Kiri, which is very good. Um, you guys should have her on, except she lives in Michigan. Um, we'll go. <laughs> Kevin's never really gone abroad. Shut too up. Much, so. <laughs> I know Michigan isn't abroad. <laughs> But yeah, and just like when I discovered her on Twitter pretty early in my transition, I was like, oh, this is a thing you can do. Mm. And what I realized was as I got more, as I got more estrogen in me, um, as I got more of the hormone cocktail I was supposed to have, as my brain settled into itself, I realized there were some things that weren't as important to me and some things that were more important to me. And like my whole life I'd wanted deeply to be 
a really good Christian. And I got to adulthood and was like, I was just trying to appease my parents. That's what it was. And I, I don't actually believe in this stuff, but I always kept going back to church. There was something there. I just couldn't get to it. And the second I got on the hormones, it was like a gear shifted in my brain and clicked into place. And I was like, oh, I get this. I love this. This is who I am. I am a Christian human being. And like, that doesn't mean I don't think other people have other religious paths. It just means that like, for me, this is the thing I feel very deeply and believe very deeply that I couldn't find because I had the wrong brain to do it. And now I have the right brain. So can you share more of like what uh, God feels like to you now? And I guess how Jesus feels to you or what is it spiritually that has shifted and how would you describe it? It feels like more of a willingness to embrace that the world doesn't always make sense, that the world is full of contradictions and the world is full of elements that we want to make sense or we want to go our way, but it's okay when they don't. And sometimes it's believing that there is a plan behind it all, that there is somebody if not actively tugging the strings, at least watching over everything and being like, like seeing the bigger picture. Um, I'm not someone who believes in like a God who comes down and goes wink and then like, you know, make sure you meet the right person or whatever. But I, mm. I do kind of believe in a God who like can see the whole picture and can see all of time and space and is like, this is going this way. This is going this way. They're going to collide here. And that's good. We want that. And maybe at like the grand scale sort of, shapes those things. So like, weirdly, it's given me a lot more comfort with doubt. I was thinking about the reaction to the movie we're going to talk about today. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I, I want to keep in this discussion. I don't want to shift to the movie just yet, but there was so much fervor around this movie. And so much of it was about how the movie expresses doubt and people are frightened by that. But like, that is what has reinvigorated my belief in God is that I feel like I can go to church and like not believe in everything or struggle with some things or struggle with the fact that I live in a world where there's a lot of horrible stuff happening and where a lot of that horrible stuff happening is being propped up by people who proclaim themselves Christians and be okay with the fact that like those things don't have to add up that like I can work to build good in the world and I can work to make the world a better place and not necessarily have to feel like everything makes sense because everything doesn't make sense and everything's never going to make sense. So I guess the, the TLDR version of that is I'm much more comfortable with doubt. That's wonderful. And it's, it's uh, like striking to me because I, I think in the kind of, kind of Christianity I've known or grown up on, it's not a friendly place to the gray space, obviously, or for yeah. like, yeah, like saying, I don't believe in this part of it. I and mean, I'm going to still sit in my pew and enjoy the service and be oh, yeah. as much a part of the body as you are. But it's nice to find places in this world where that's, you can have both. I grew up among biblical literalists. I think probably we all did. Yes. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a place where like the idea of evolution was like this wildly controversial thing and like disprovable by the way. Yeah. You can totally oh. disprove it. I've seen it. I've seen, a lot of I've takes. seen the bones. <laughs> She's the cool one. <laughs> <laughs> she just put on her sunglasses and a baseball cap backwards. She's just, she's pulling out photos of fossils that she says are And fake. dinosaurs are fabricated by the media. <laughs> Jurassic Park was not a documentary. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I, I grew up a biblical literalist and like was like, oh, the earth was created in seven days. Noah's Ark was a real thing. Jonah and the whale was a real thing. And like, 
the second I got to like 10 or 11, I was like, I'm not sure about some of this. And the first big breakthrough I had was before I came out as trans, like early in my thirties, I was like, a story doesn't have to be true to be true. I recently saw the movie Midsummer for the second time. And like, I, I love that movie. I, it went from being one of my favorite movies of the year to me being like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it is because it puts on its finger on something that I believe to be true, even if it's not a true story. And like, at a certain point I was like, okay, some of this stuff in the Bible isn't true, but it's true. You know, it's, it's getting at a deeper thing that we really have to think about and wrestle with and grapple with. And that is more interesting to me than, well, Jonah was swallowed by a whale and then he prayed to God and like <laughs> God took care of him. And then there was a tree and you learn this from that. No, like, like for my right brain self talking about like Jonah as a, as a symbol of this or of that is much more meaningful than, you know, insisting this really happened. And then like the, the idea that like I had just been coming at religion and it's like evangelical Christianity is a weird space for someone who is assigned male at birth, especially someone who has more interest in traditionally feminine coded things, uh, less masculine pursuits. And like, I never fit well into that. I always wanted to hang out in the kitchen with the ladies after church preparing coffee. And like, I didn't know why I wanted to do that. I didn't understand it, but I do literally wonder, like if I had been born cis, like if I would have just been like a Republican, (laughs) (laughs) like if cis, if cis lady me like has a really big house in like Tampa, Florida that she she owns with her, she owns with her husband. Hobby Lobby is an aesthetic. Yeah. It is good. And she's, she's always like, well, you know, I know that Trump does some bad things and I'm concerned about these camps too. But then she like gestures to her whole house and it's like, but Dave and I've got to keep this. Um, but yeah. And like the second I allowed myself to go to church as myself, like, I just was like, Oh, here it is. This is who I, this is who I was supposed to be. This is who I was. And like learning that I could doubt made it easier to believe in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like so many of my teachers or pastors, they thought having like an airtight theology was a selling Mm -hmm. point, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, this is why Christianity is so amazing. The math checks out. Yeah. It's a balanced equation. Everything yeah everything checks out and like there's no questions there's no loose ends here there's no like we have an answer for all those things isn't that wonderful why would you want to be anything but a christian and for a while that was like totally satisfying until it isn't and then but it is a selling point because i think a lot of people do go to a church for a sense of like assurance and safety and so churches like abuse that in a way it's an attempt to manage the limits of your imagination Mm -hmm. and like it gets scary out there if you feel like oh well in this dark part like i actually don't know what's gonna happen here so why why am i doing any of this faith stuff if there's no comfort in it yeah the writer uh the writer and scholar chrissy stroop another great trans woman um who has studied some of this uh, who studies evangelical Christianity in essence, and like uh, the movement she calls exvangelicals, um, people who left the evangelical church. And like, I know she's come up before. I'm sorry to repeat all of this, oh, but if, if this is your first episode, everybody, I'm, I'm downloading you on some of the mythology. Chrissy Stroop has written a lot about the exvangelical movement and like how evangelical Christianity in essence, and this is me putting words in her mouth, but is sort of creating fences around what's acceptable to think about. I didn't figure out there was something around my gender until I was 22. And then it took me another 15 years to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trans. I knew I was trans at 22. 
it took me 15 years to actually say that even to myself. And a big part of that was I grew up in a church that limited my imagination because to limit the imagination was the safest way to keep people coming to that church, having kids, continuing to propagate the church. When the church exists primarily to propagate itself instead of as a place for community to come together and have these conversations about difficult topics, then you're getting into an area when it just is, it's, it's rife for abuse and it's rife to be turned into a thing that exists to be like, we need to have second amendment rights because that's what Jesus would want. It's a God given right or whatever. Yeah. Like a conversation we're having right now. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that went really far afield. No, I feel you. I, uh, I want to refer to a piece you wrote when you came out okay, called coming out as trans in Donald Trump's America, the catastrophist or, on coming out as trans at 37. Yes. The official title. Because it touches upon something that you were talking about, about maybe in some ways how your view of God has shifted and your idea of what they may or may not control or a master plan or whatever. In a paragraph that I found was really beautiful. It intersects with a lot of, I think, affirming Christian conversation around transgender identity. There's a book by a man named Austin Hartke, and he opens it by uh, asking a, a lot of different trans people, do you feel like God made a mistake mm. in like making you, and then you had to correct? And and everyone's answer to the question was like, no. Yeah. I don't think this is a mistake. I think this is exactly what was supposed to happen. And I feel like that idea intersects really beautifully with what you said in your piece when you said, I believed for too long, and what you might believe too, is that your body is not a gift, but an obligation. That it is not who you are, but a series of tasks assigned to you by the accident of your birth. This is not true. The best obligations, the only real obligations, are chosen. Your life is your life. It is worth fighting for. Which I thought was a very beautiful wow, thought. That was the, the last thing I wrote in that piece. Yeah, the, the, the idea of one of the arguments against trans people is God doesn't make mistakes. And like, I think God didn't make a mistake. I think that if God had any act in my creation, he made me trans. And I think that he wants me to be trans. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that he sees in that something beautiful. And uh, my wife and I met with our pastor uh, before I was planning to come out. And he was like, this is godly. This is holy. Like our church, I'm an Episcopal. Our church, he was like, we fought all these battles in the 90s. And like the progressive forces sort of won. Um, And he was like, this is godly, this is holy. And then he prayed with us and I was like, oh, this doesn't have to be a shame. This doesn't have to be in conflict with, this can be in harmony with. And yeah, I think, I think it, it, it is, and it continues to be. And um, I have been so blessed to live in a, in a world and in a city that lets me figure that out and that gives me the space to uh talk about it and to have platforms like this where hey. I can discuss it with my with my friend Car- with my friend Kevin and my extremely good friend Caroline. <laughs> with your acquaintance Kevin ah! and your BFF Caroline. <laughs> with Caroline and her secretary. <laughs> a dog? <laughs> dog who can talk? Oh man. I'm so glad you're a writer and I'm so glad that you can talk about those things in the way that you do, which is so profound. And and also that you are in a space where you're so supported for the most part and do have these things. That's what yeah. everyone deserves, like baseline. And so I'm so glad you're getting it. Yeah, I hear from so many trans people are expressing, you know, all of these hopes and fears and things that they're not sure about. And like, I, I just, I, I take that on cause I'm a public person. Like I have a public persona. 
I am a public trans woman, which is there aren't a lot of us, you know, um, at least a lot of us that people feel they can approach. And um, so I do take that on. But like, I am not under any impression that if my life had gone different in two or three different ways, I would be having it as as quote unquote good as I do right now. I am Mm -hmm. very aware of my privilege and my blessing um, at living the life I have. Hey, well, thanks for sharing your story, Emily. It was really good catching up. You're you're welcome. Um, so glad we got to hear it. Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, I do want to go back uh, to the part where uh, Emily did come out to me earlier this year, uh, because again, it was a joint honor and privilege to be a part of it. Also, at the end of the conversation, I said, "Thanks for telling me, Sarah." <laughs> <laughs> Like a dumbass. <laughs> like a well, stupid idiot. Uh, Emily lovingly corrected Sarah. me. I don't know where Sarah came from. I've totally done that too. Sometimes I like shoot in the dark and sometimes it's right. And it's like not right a lot of the time. Oh so, boy. My bad. Uh, but uh, let's take a break and we'll be right back with more good Christian fun. Emily. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by AuraFrames. That is right. Uh, From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an AuraFrame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, wow. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these AuraFrames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an AuraFrame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm-hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code HEADGUM at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Good Christian Fun. It's time to dive back in. Kevin's a person and he's my friend. <laughs> well, why don't you want to get in the bathtub? Come on, let's go. The show has changed, Emily. <laughs> the show has taken a turn for the incoherent. I follow your adventures. I follow your <laughs> I don't think you I don't think you caught this on tape, but I was telling you guys before we started recording that mm-hmm. the uh, version of the theme song that had all the weird stuff overlaid was like a clue a serial killer leaves mm-hmm. in like a movie where the, the guy's like, Okay, well, 
What's Gerbert have to do with this? <laughs> oh wait, is this going to be Mindhunter season four, the Gerbert killer? Yeah. Wow! All the all the victims happened in the bathtub. You're close. It's not a serial killer. It's a mass bombing that <laughs> we're probably oh all planning. <laughs> I would never. Not a mass <laughs> bombing. <laughs> uh, yes. Speaking of a massive bomb, uh, the last the temptation office? of Christ. Oh, nice. Box office mojo, get at me. Technically it, made its money back. Technically, yeah, because yeah, it was like a seven mil budge. Seven million budget made. Made eight mil back, eight, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to get too Griffin Newman in the weeds about it, but yeah. So Last Temptation of Christ is a movie I'd never seen before uh, doing it for this show this Same. week. Uh, i never seen it Yeah, you've never seen it before. When, when did you first see it? I saw it in college. I've seen it a few times. It's one of my oh, wow. favorite movies. It's one of my favorite Martin Scorsese movies, especially... Um, this is the thing I say, knowing full well he's made better movies. Like this movie was made on the cheap and very rushed, and it shows in places. He has made few movies as deeply felt as this. I think like this is clearly someone who grew up Catholic, grappling with like his own doubt about all of these different topics in the um, uh, in in the Christian world, and like. That to me shines through loud and clear, and like I, I, I do love this movie, and I'm really glad that I got to talk about it. So, hey, I mean Paul Schrader too, yeah. old Calvinist college Paul uh-huh. Schrader, yeah. uh, who we've talked about a little bit with First Reform stuff, writing that screenplay, and parts of this movie were just like it's a long ass movie, it's yeah. two hours forty five minutes. I think it could be shorter in parts. Do you? Do you not? <laughs> You could cut it down. You could like you could get it to two fifteen, I think, but I think you would lose some of its flavor. I think you do need I think you do need the main stuff you'd be tempted to cut would either be the last temptation sequence, which is the last forty five minutes, or everything leading up to when he's baptized, which is the first hour or so. Because that's not what's, you know, the biblical stuff. Like they they do kind of the greatest hits of the gospels in that middle hour. I think you need it to lay out this movie's very specific vision of the politics and the world of this version of Jesus, which is a spin on the real politics and world yeah. of Jesus. Yeah, I knew this growing up as the oh yeah the Jesus sex movie. Oh, <laughs> I so was scared. In your family, did they talk about it at all? Or I, you just like no, heard it I just uh, my mom or dad said a couple times like, yeah, I think Jesus has sex in that movie, which is. True in some ways, but then in other ways, like it is so funny to think about the controversy of blasphemy or perceived blasphemy that happened Mm -hmm. at the time of release in 1988. There were protests. There was violence, I think, in some cases. They firebombed a theater in Paris. Like under the seat of people who were watching the movie as it happened, just random people. And so, and, and it's so funny to think about, like, if something came out in 2019 that was like 12 times as like perverse as mm-hmm. is this movie is perceived to be, I feel like it wouldn't make a blip. No. Yeah, like, I think there would be a lot of, you know, like faux pearl clutching of like, how dare you say like the F word in this movie or something like that. I, th- I think you but, could yeah. put out a movie a lot like this and be celebrated by a lot of Christians. I think now, yeah, you yeah. get the Sufjan Christians out there for you. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Like you know, the- we'd be piping up. Hey. Um, it, yeah, but it, I, I think that was what surprised me is when, when the movie finished, I was like, I found this to be a profoundly respectful movie to yeah. Jesus. And like, a, it's a Jesus that I think we all are pretty 
cool with in general. I mean, beyond the temptation part, but even then, yeah, it was like a, a good Jesus that you kind of want to believe in and, and like a fraught, interesting one. Well, and just the... the and you got to see his ass. And you got to see some Jesus ass, and first and foremost. that was an angle that we have not seen. Good gracious. <laughs> it was nice. I mean, so so the, the, the foremost thought I had watching, especially like the first two thirds of the movie is like, Man, it sucks to be Jesus. <laughs> Who would want it? Who would want this it? This sucks. And then just like that full humanity of like, and I think what's offensive to people, and it's based on a novel that's like playing with these themes, obviously, but just the idea of like, he probably got pissed off a lot and yeah. like was frustrated. But we're so used to this cultural perception of like, you know, he was just kind of the serene weirdo that would just like float around yeah. and kind of like touch you soft and you'd smile. cry. Yeah, and softly <laughs> smiling all the time. You never think about the true reality of like, as a historical person, he was probably like, yeah, just so angry or sad or confused or frustrated and had bouts that might have been analogous to what would be perceived externally as schizophrenia and like voices in his head and being haunted by the idea of the cross. Seeming like a lunatic on some point too. Yeah, I mean, I but just yeah. thought... And anytime, almost like anytime there's like historical fiction where it's like the true events of like the Titanic sinking or like some other historical thing, and you're just coming at it with a different angle of empathy and not even like contradicting what the actual account or most popular accounts of the thing were, but a different angle of like, but, but okay, you've taken this at face value before, but actually like keep pressing in to what you've just taken for granted in the mm. sense of like, Oh yeah, we're, like what was his relationship like with Judas? Like the Judas stuff is like more of a fabrication of like him coming to him saying like I'm gonna kill you. Oh, <laughs> hey. Brooklyn Judas, <laughs> Harvey Keitel, yeah, uh, doing no like <laughs> like not even trying whatsoever. I love I love that everybody just yeah. does their regular accent yeah. and just like that's okay, it's fine. That Harvey Keitel sounds like one of the Wet Bandits is yeah. so good. It's amazing. Well, to me, it makes it feel more like a play and more yeah. of like a theatrical like going to the theater experience of like some people because you know it's not like the I'm never that charmed by the passion of the Christ uh, aesthetic with like whatever movie of like they shot in the actual language and they used the most period appropriate wood uh, for the cross and like all that stuff I like the idea of that like it's fictionalized so just like lean into it and even like subtle things like I think correct me if I'm wrong all the Romans are have British accents mm -hmm. and all the Jerusalem people have like a Brooklyn have, accent yeah, have, which was like on a, purpose like a working oh. class Brooklyn yeah, yeah no they said that and because they, they wanted the disciples to see what Scorsese said was like street guys like guys you just knew from your and like Willem Dafoe kind of rides the line between those two he's a little more mid-Atlantic which is kind of the American version of British so like yes, yeah. you get the sense of him as being part of both worlds in some ways like he could be the, like sort of this movie's argument is that like he could have been a great political revolutionary, except he wanted to be like a religious revolutionary. And like that was more important ultimately to the history of mankind. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful, respectful movie. And like I, I, I grew up hearing about it as this weird whispered about thing. And yeah. 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 Well, people were, for, I'm sure of like, there's nudity in it. You see Mary Magdalene, you see, you know, her breasts in the movie. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a, a sex scene in the last third, kind of. I also of, used to see her like sleep with dozens of men and well, not literally, but like over the span of time too, which was, I, I thought incredible. Like, yes, let's acknowledge that she actually was a sex worker and like yeah. had to deal with that. And like, if you can't see that, if you want to, yeah, like 
wash her experience in some way, that's going to ruin like a lot of your conception of what the gospel is like. My favorite thing is that when we see Jesus, butt, uh, I paused, I paused the movie to go do something and I came back and I was watching on Amazon. (laughs) Is this streaming on prime? Yeah, it's, you can rent it though. But Amazon does the thing that brings up the name of the actors. So right next to Jesus, right next to Jesus, butt is smiling Willem Dafoe. It says Willem (laughs) Dafoe, Jesus. I took a photo of it, but it doesn't look very good because it was just my technique. (laughs) Hey, I'm in this movie. Check this out. You look good. Yeah, I mean, listen. He was like, cut yeah he's he's kind of jacked yeah did, did you know him primarily as green goblin guy before this yeah <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah he's been like just i think his face got so creased that he's just played villains and like weirdos and lizards for a long time and i think it was nice to see him like oh yeah he's like yeah he's been nominated for four oscars and it's one of those things where it's like it was like 1986 and 2000 and then like the last two like he's had this long career he's done so much stuff and like i think he, this is honestly his best performance it is it is I, it is so hard to i mean one just like <laughs> portray one of the most famous people who ever lived but then two his time in the desert and the temptation and play all of those colors with like absolute truth and, and and humanity i feel like the word i keep coming back to is like the humanity of all mm-hmm. that stuff and not just seem like a totally inaccessible weirdo because i feel like that's been my primary relationship with like a lot of jesus stuff and even what we've talked about on the show of like like the fig tree story i don't want to be friends with that guy mm-hmm. i don't want to be friends with the guy that's like kind of dumb and gets confused that figs aren't in season and then has a tantrum like a yeah like a like a kid kind of a cult leader in yeah. a lot of ways too yeah. yeah but this idea of jesus who's just like <laughs> sad and kind of depressed all the time yeah. and hears stuff and doesn't know who to trust and a lot of people want a lot of different things from him i feel like weirdly watching this movie made me have more affection for the person who was jesus but had made me have like less affection for the idea of father God mm. as we've been given it. Cause it's like it's pretty abusive. Well, cause his thing is like, like garden Gethsemane stuff. You just see it fully from his POV. And it, and it like those scenes are pretty faithful to what like actual scripture is. Uh, but just him saying, take this cup. Is there any other way? You're like, yeah, is there any other way? Because this plan sucks shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this feels bad. And then, you know, all that, like, what, what did you make of the last third of the movie? Like, how did that strike you? Because he gets, he's he's uh, approached by uh, who someone who claims to be an angel, a guardian angel, yeah. a little British a uh, blonde girl mm-hmm. who then turns out to be Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Which all little British blonde girls eventually and do. And we need to As talk about that more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back before then because I, as we're talking about Jesus and like, in this movie, probably feeling like very real depression or very real, like, I don't know, schizophrenia or at least just like a mind that's so fragmented by like his own circumstances in life. Uh, when you think about like any depiction of Jesus's life has to also be a depiction of a sinless life. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, profound to be like, yeah, the sadness or this like anger or whatever was not sinful, at least in the portrayal of this movie, which is kind of beautiful. And I'm sure like really comforting on yeah. some level too, for anybody who can like recognize that to be like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like it's totally safe and holy still to be like beset by your like tragic. And a lot of this stuff is in the Bible. 
Like yeah. Jesus doubting the plan is from the Bible, mm. and like the, that is in essence saying having doubt about God's plan is not a sin, and like. Go and say that in a mega church somewhere, you know? Yeah. And instead, I feel like I just heard a lot about like sweating blood just meant he was really stressed, you know, or something like that. (laughs) Mondays. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? Like, I feel like a lot of uh, depictions of those scenes were more like a torture porn perspective than like a, yeah, like we all uh, feel this and that's also holy and good. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, it's so funny to think about the ideas of we're all familiar with, you know, uh, pastors or preachers saying you know and anger is good sometimes jesus had righteous anger jesus overturned uh the money changers tables i never thought was a nice thing to do or a very jesus-y thing to do right oh sure but but just like as a as a culture and probably evangelical culture that's something where it's like yeah we take it at face value like get him (laughs) but then it's like okay if this is true what else is true nothing that happens in this movie is that much of a leap from that idea but i think there's something like comforting probably about like the very masculine show of anger of like he flipped a table he was so mad but some doing something that's more internalized and more like him narrating like you know what's the quote like when I look at a woman, I feel lust, and then I look away, and it makes me feel pride. And like actually interrogating those mm-hmm. ideas That's at my that level, scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and just him. T- and I, I know they Schrader got a rewrite from Scorsese because then they shot it years later than they were going to. But I mean that Schrader dialogue of, of yeah, just like actually playing the truth of that of of Jesus being like. I feel rage. I want to steal. I want to cheat. I want to kill people. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I wanted to stone the people who were stoning Mary. I'm a liar. A hypocrite. I'm afraid of everything. I don't ever tell the truth. I don't have the courage. When I see a woman, I blush and look away. I want her, but I don't take her for God. And that makes me proud. And then my pride ruins Magdalene. I don't steal. I don't fight. I don't kill, not because I don't want to, but because I'm afraid. I want to rebel against you, against everything, against God, but I'm afraid. You want to know who my mother and father are? You want to know who my God is? Fear. You look inside me and that's all you'll find. There was something... Watching it just made me feel so much more connected to him because of that, more so than I have in really any other depiction of Jesus that mm-hmm. I've I've come across in fiction. Yeah. Or in the Bible, maybe, yeah. unfortunately. The actual agony of like yeah. battling your conscience and going back and forth of like, what was my motivation? Am I being prideful by not sinning? And mm-hmm. all those things. A lot of the stuff you'd cut is the stuff that's like essentially political arguments. Like there's an argument between Judas and Jesus where Judas is arguing what you have to do first is free people's bodies. You have to create a more equitable society where everyone uh, shares equally. Um, In essence, he's pitching sort of Roman empire socialism is what Judas is saying. And Jesus is saying, no, you have to break the hold evil has over all of our spirits or else the thing you install will become just as bad as the thing you're overthrowing, which from human history we know is always true. And like taking care of people's bodily needs is important. It's a central tenet of like a lot of the best stuff about Christianity. But at the end of the day, like the only way to change the world is to change people's hearts. And 
that's the work of, you know, the entire Christian project. So. Mm. Like, uh, I feel like people say systematic change and they're usually talking about like governmental change mm-hmm. or whatever, but you're talking about, no, like your internal prejudices and yeah. your anger problems and your, your like ability to cut people out of your life that you should be caring for or things like that. There's, um, the, the YouTuber ContraPoints, um, made a video about, it's called, just called men, (laughs) (laughs) but like the end of it is like, she's really hard, like she's heartened by former alt-right people who've swung really radical left, but she's also like, even if we overthrow, you know, the, the world as it is, it's not going to fulfill your sense of self. Like the sense of self has to come from somewhere within you. You Mm -hmm. have to take care of yourself on some level. And I just was like, that's a thing that we really struggle with in this society as we've like, I think it's a good thing that the church's power over everything has been broken, but like the church or whatever religion was sort of the predominant faith of your country, like that used to fill a sort of spiritual self that, now we're trying to fill it with like movies and like it doesn't work the same way. Do you do you feel that too? Yeah. It's a conversation we've had a couple of times off mic, mm-hmm. but how like people are looking to, because there is such a vacuum of moral accountability people. or leadership. We are looking. Yeah. yeah. You know, actually me. I yeah. need a tweet I'm going to look up, but please. Oh yeah. <laughs> but just like institutionally, it feels like it's the morning after. It's like, there's no fooling anybody when like the, most powerful people are the most powerful people in the world. So then you start looking to other things for that moral sense of whatever, mm-hmm. whether you're like conscious of it or not. And no one's like turning on whatever and saying like, I'm at church, but it does feel like on some level, the didacticism high key or low key that we crave does feel like a placeholder for yeah. that stuff sometimes because it's like, well, these things have failed us. So can the little things that maybe weren't built for that, but maybe we can like co-opt them yeah, yeah. to, to be that on some level. I feel that way all the time that like, okay, here we go. I found, I found it. So what I said was somebody, somebody, uh, Vikram Murthy, the, the great critic said, a lot of people want movies to be efficient, timely delivery systems of moral instruction shrugs. What can you do? And I replied to that with, there are no traditional moral arbiters left. So an entire generation has decided that art traditionally something that complicates simple moral rubrics should do the job in this essay. I will. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, that's it. <laughs> but yeah, like I think about all the time, how people, um, how people are like, I'm going to pick a movie I really like. I really think Black Panther is a great movie, but I think that people feel like liking that movie is an act of moral good in a way that mm-hmm. is like, maybe not true. Like that is still a giant piece of corporate entertainment that is propped up by a company that does a lot of bad things in the world. How are you receiving this, Caroline? I have too doubt long. I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And uh, I know I, I, battle that too on some level too because a lot of the time when people want movies or tv to be better moral machines they might be doing that mistakenly or they're also just trying to like reduce the harm that old movies and and tv shows did Mm -hmm. that like reinforced bad stereotypes or like bad you know like depictions of rape and stuff like that and so they are demanding perfection from people who are like no this is art it's supposed to be this way and they're like no you don't realize how much trouble it caused for a lot of us too so 
I think we can mistake them for each other sometimes. I think that Black Panther can be a wonderful step forward for representation in Hollywood and can be a wonderful superhero movie and is still not necessarily a moral object. It is not like a thing that we can sit there and be like, yes, this is good and we are good for liking it. Mm, like, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't, yeah, it shouldn't like win you points in like yeah. the battle for equity to be like, and I liked Black Panther, you know? Oh! <laughs> Whoa. How do you feel about, because um, this is, a sort of a subheading of that conversation, but how do you feel about movies that require, or any media that requires discernment on a part of the viewer? I really struggle with this right now as a critic. I think a lot about, I had this conversation with some other critics a little while ago. I think a lot about, I do think the audience is smarter than we give them credit for, but also I kind of don't think they're smarter than we give them credit for. A big part of the rise of Donald Trump was that people genuinely believed he was a smart businessman because he played one on TV for many, many years and like played that part well. I do wonder what happens when we become trapped in... We're having this conversation a lot because the movie Joker is coming up and mm, like right. people are people are freaking out. I just out. fell off the couch fainting, <laughs> exhausted by the discourse. People are freaking out about the idea of a movie that is, and is, uh, I haven't seen it, but apparently it is satirically talking about this problem of alienated white men who are in essence turning to violence to gain meaning in their lives and like they find meaning and purpose in these communities of, of, of violence that they build online. Like you think about the incel community and how many people there are talking about, you know, how women won't sleep with them. So it's time to kill as many as possible. And like some of them actually do. And Joker's sort of playing with that fire. 10 years ago, I would have said, well, it's their right. And like, if they do it well, then the audience is going to know it's not, you know, the audience is going it's to know that they're, yeah, yeah. it's not an endorsement because I do genuinely believe depiction is not an endorsement. Depiction is sometimes saying this is a thing that exists in the world. Um, violence, torture, rape, murder are things that exist in the world. Art has to be able to deal with those to talk about the way the world is. But at the same time, the power of art is that you get so drawn into it. Um, a movie that I think is a really great movie is Fight Club. And a lot of people think that's an endorsement of the views expressed in Fight Club when it's a satire of the views endorsed in Fight Club. And I think it's pretty clear it's a satire. And it's made by a great filmmaker who's really good at what he's doing. And still, the majority takeaway people have from that movie is, yeah, men have it tough. I should start a fight club. Yeah, tell a generation of college freshmen who had that poster in their dorm room. Yeah. <laughs> that lesson. Right. I know, and I know, and I know what you're saying because I, I go back and forth on that stuff of like, yeah, there should be responsibility. But then you think about like, I mean, gosh, not to harp on Joker too much, but just like the example of like, yes, we can trust a, a nuanced, balanced perspective where uh, depiction doesn't equal endorsement from checks notes. Todd Phillips, okay. Because <laughs> um, you, would, you would maybe expect something like that from perhaps like any kind of sort oh, yeah. of intersectional filmmaker or like what if it like a what if, what if Catherine Bigelow did a Joker movie or Catherine something like Bigelow that would knock it out of the park right you can't trust someone named Todd you just can't <laughs> wait wait a minute oh no oh that's bad news for a lot of people <laughs> no like uh like yeah there it's modeled it's it's obviously modeled on the movies of Martin Scorsese and Martin Scorsese knows how to play with that material now like there are movies people have like Taxi Driver is a classic example of a movie some people took the wrong idea from including the guy who tried to shoot uh I think the guy who tried to shoot Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if it was him or the guy who shot Lennon. But That's like, so Reagan. But <laughs> That's so Reagan. <laughs> what? Excuse me. That's oh, Reagan. Ronald, are you here? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like well? so. 
You look at that movie, it literally inspired someone to commit a pretty horrible yeah. crime. And, and Aurora Steph, obviously, is going to be a talking point. But. Would you two say that, like, it's the degree with how sympathetic they are to someone like the Joker in the movie that, like, determines whether it's a good thing for them to do or not? Well, I think it's tricky because we are automatically accustomed to becoming sympathetic with a protagonist mm. to return to black Panther. The simple fact that all of the people in that movie, save for a couple of token white guys are black people like that automatically is a radical thing because we're not used to having the conversation shifted in that direction that this gigantic corporate thing that was a guaranteed blockbuster hit, um, had that many people of color at every level, both of its behind the scenes and in front of the camera, uh, that shifts the conversation in that way. So I do think that there's to some degree this element of, yes, we sympathize with the protagonist just by default. But the problem sort of becomes that like um, in some of these movies, you know, it, it's this guy who doesn't do great things and we live with him and we live in his head for a while and we start to see the world his way. And like, I think some people never quite get out of it. Um to use a TV example, look at how many people watched Breaking Bad and thought Walter White is the coolest guy and I wish I was like him and I wish that I could like yeah. do what he does. Whereas like for all of us, it should be more of like, but for the grace of God, there go I, you know, right. or that kind of perspective of like your shit, but we could see how would that could happen maybe. And Breaking Bad is a moral tale. Like it is a show that is like, don't do this. Don't do this. This is bad. And it is rubbing your face in that. But because you start to sympathize with the protagonist and literally anything in television is maybe the worst because it normalizes everything because you sit in it for so long. Um, I don't know if you guys watch The Handmaid's Tale, yeah. but you've been you're th we're three seasons into that. They have to up the ante and how they shock you because we're so like the idea of Gilead is now just like, yep, that's normal because we've lived there for so long. And like. That's the problem television always runs into. So I like to believe viewers have discernment, but there's a lot of compelling evidence they don't <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That reminds me uh, of like Seinfeld. Didn't like Jerry said like, they're all awful people. Like you oh, shouldn't yeah. want to be friends mm -hmm. with them. But everyone's like, Jerry's the cool, you know, Elaine's the, the best. The finale of Seinfeld is literally Larry David being like, these are bad people. And everybody <laughs> hated it. Like, yeah, it's like so much affection for them for at the end. I, I want to uh, refer to people to a podcast called Invisibilia. There was an episode called The End of Empathy. And I won't spoil like kind of how they do that episode, but it's pretty extraordinary, the technique that they use. And there's an idea they hit upon in the last third of that of is your concept of empathy. You see the whole world via that. And it's like the sun and it shines on everything. And like, even though this person voted for this awful person or believes mm -hmm. this terrible thing, you still have a responsibility to understand where they're coming from and have empathy or is empathy less like a sun and more like a lantern where it's a, not an infinite resource. It's finite and you can only give it so much to certain things because if you give one side empathy, it comes at the cost of another side and you are in, you know, danger of marginalizing another kind of group of people. When I started coming out to people, um, I said, I have, I don't, I'm not going to make this complicated for you. I have three things I'd like you to do. I'd be like, my name is Emily now. Please call me Emily. They were like, oh, okay, I'll try. You know, like, it'll be tough, but I'll try. I use she, her pronouns, please try. And they're like, well, if I'm calling you Emily, that makes sense. And then the third thing was like, please don't vote for politicians who are trying to legislate me out of existence. And people were like, are you saying I'm a bad person? Like literally 
that was where they jumped to. Like the idea that <laughs> you're judging like, me. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and like that was the sticking point, which I was not really expecting because I've heard so much about how um, some trans people like their pronouns become a big issue. And mine really haven't been. But like asking people not to support politicians who are anti-trans because a lot of politicians are anti-trans and yeah. especially from a certain party um, that and a lot of people I know like to vote for. So mm shrug (laughs) getting back to the idea of discernment with this movie i feel like if you were not a discerning person and you just saw a headline of like she's a sex scene nudity some violence whatever but even even then it feels abundantly clear especially by the conceit of the ending feeling so triumphant in so many ways after this extended sort of fantasy i guess it's like it is a riff on occurrence at owl creek bridge Mm -hmm. right Mm-hmm. They had to, you know that short story? It's a short story where a man gets hanged uh, or he starts to become hanged and then the rope breaks and he escapes and this whole story happens and then flashes back to the end of like, that's just all something he imagined right before he, he actually got hung. Ooh. So there's, a, I think there's a, there's a lot of movies that take that format kind of or, or that. Oh my concept. God, this is just a, this is just a Twilight Zone episode about Jesus. Yes, in a way. Kind of is, in a way, yeah. yeah. And I will say that as sinless as Jesus was depicted and as complicated as that was, I think we can all agree that the biggest sin in this movie is the dye job on Judas's hair. Uh, it was nice. What was that choice? <laughs> and the perm, like, on top of the that. Perm. It was so intense. Jesus, I gotta kill you. Don't make me kill you now. <laughs> I'm, I So I can, can I talk a little bit about, yeah. I remember the controversy because I was like old enough to be really interested in the movies, but also really like I knew I was supposed to love God. And like my church was an evangelical church, a small town evangelical church, but we had little flyers about how this movie was evil. And flyers. Yeah. You went, do you want to the, Printing costs. Yeah, of making sure yeah. That well, people it was, knew that. and like, I what I one of the things I never knew when I read on Wikipedia about the reception of this movie today. I was just doing some research. It was primarily Catholic people pushing it, and like, I did not know that because I was so immersed in the evangelical pushback. But the Pope came out and yeah, condemned it, and like, and and Mother Angelica. Time. Oh my god, TV personality Mother Angelica, <laughs> and like, then the Catholic film publication was like. It's bad, but not because it contradicts the Gospels. It's bad because of artistic quality, which it lacks. Um, But what happened was they stripped everything out of context. It literally was just like, they literally just said, you know, Jesus has sex in this movie. Jesus does this in this movie. Mary Magdalene has tattoos. My God. Like that was a big, that was a big point of contention. That Mary Magdalene had tattoos. Oh boy. Is that was that a thing in your churches that people tattoos, shouldn't have yeah. tattoos? Yeah, yeah, it's still a thing with my mom. Yeah, yeah, my and mom my, too. My brother and sister have tattoos, and I don't. If there was anyone that was likely Ooh. to have them, oh hey, I feel like really it's like yeah. aesthetic reasons. I feel like it's our parents being like, "Don't ruin your perfect body." There's apparently there's apparently a thing in Leviticus or whatever yeah. that's like, "Don't get markings on your skin." But come on, please pierce my ears, no problem. At yeah. thirteen, yeah, that's fine. I know because even if you take the controversy at face value, it's like, well, in the dream sequence, they they do get married, yeah. and he's not the Messiah in the dream, so it's they all within ha- bounds. Yeah, they they don't even have premarital sex, so I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah. but even well, just the idea, I think people thought it was all like titillation, is what they were playing yeah. those scenes for. But they are not. Well, they're that's like, what I imagined as a kid. Watch, if anything, yeah, <laughs> that's I like d- it's really setting up this idea that like they had this unrequited love. 
And then part of what Jesus gets when he's tempted by Satan is a chance to requite that love and that that can be beautiful too. Like Mm -hmm. that there's a beauty to that carnal pleasure and that there is a horror to abstaining from it. And that it, it does complicate your views of God and the devil. But a lot of the propaganda against this movie was based on the script that somebody got hold of and like they never saw the movie. So like, and they didn't understand what was happening in it and just like, Probably just didn't watch it. Yeah, they yeah. never watched it. Like I, years and years and years later, I was having uh, dinner with some Christian relatives, and somehow this movie came up, and I was and and, <laughs> and I was like talking about how much I love this movie. This was like 2013. It was so long yeah, after. It was a slow news day. They're yeah. like, oh, passion, last temptation of Christ. <laughs> oh, it, might, it was. It might have been like the 25th anniversary or something. But like I was talking about how much I love the movie, and they were like, what, really? And then they listed off the reasons. I was like. Yeah, that all happens in a dream sequence that Satan uses to tempt Jesus away from his path. And then he returns and is crucified and like it's triumphant. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Like people don't know the conceit of this movie. Truly, if you are an evangelical with like a mainstream interpretation of all this stuff, this, this idea of like, Jesus counting the cost of of not like like we focus so much in the culture on like the brutality and the whippings which the whipping scene in this movie isn't even that long and the violence isn't even that grotesque but so oh, you I would disagree yeah yeah the spurting blood when they like hammer his nail into the foot and everything well, I guess I'm I'm thinking of it comparatively to the Mel Gibson oh, yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, where I it's just so. like where it's like hostile, really it's like torture porn. That, yeah. yeah, and but Linger. people love focusing on that stuff, like the pain he was put through for you, and less so on like this is also this is true, but also like think about what he gave up. Yeah. Like he was he was a guy. Yeah, the pain of losing a normal life. Yeah, he had desires like you. You think he was just like some floaty guy with a smile on his face where it's like he probably wanted to hook up with Mary or like it's possible that he did. He probably wanted to have this kind of life. He kind of, he probably wanted to live to a certain age yeah. and not being like able to. Normal friendships could yeah. have been on the table for yeah. him. Yeah, totally. I mean, you read the Da Vinci Code. He totally did. Yeah, mm. it was cool. Dan Brown, get at me. <laughs> oh, I had such, I had like a real trouble with my faith after I read that book. Oh my God. <laughs> like really? for real. Yeah, because uh, because a lot of the one, I, the, I don't think I was supposed to read it, but my parents didn't know anything about it. And then, like a lot of the stuff that's in that book are like real artifacts or uh-huh. real, you know, works of art or books or things like that. And that's what really was like, oh, <laughs> like that that could be true. Look, if you want to start a spinoff about. podcast called Good Da Vinci Code, fine. Okay. I'm there. I am also there. Although the movies were. Okay. What, well, I already knew it was a temptation scene, but I remember I was like really thrown off when um, Mary Magdalene just dies out of nowhere. Uh-huh. And then the angel slash demon is like. There's just one woman in the world, and she has many faces. Which which uh, tracks better when you realize it's Satan. Yeah, that. when at first they said that, I thought that was supposed to be sort of like a neutral statement, and it pissed me off. And then I was like, oh, Satan. Because yeah. basically just being like, move on, sleep with whoever. Yeah, women are fine. interchangeable. They're the here for your Women whatever. are just, yeah, like a husk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really like, like I love the compl- complicated nature of saying that we we do have to feed our bodies we do have to feed our carnal nature but also like there's that's so easy to tilt over into sin and like that's why the aesthetic life of the ascetic life of just like 
shutting yourself off and becoming a monk holds this 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 uh this temptation to us because it just like it feels like it would be easier to not have those complications that mm-hmm. come with being like i can sleep with any woman i want because mm-hmm. they're all the same yeah i'm not the same <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh shouts to david bowie for his i guess kind of he's only one scene so i guess it's kind of a cameo yeah. he was still very much david bowie as, as pontius <laughs> pilot like but i felt i really enjoyed the way he played it though because you just think of pontius pilot in in whatever scriptural context is like, ah, he's just like a, like essentially Ted Cruz or something where it's just like this spineless guy who just like did the most uh, preferable political thing. But this one, he, he did have a little compassion. Like, you, you know, dude, I'm trying to help you out. Just like do a miracle or something. I don't want to do this. And uh, I think you could tell at least politically he was, uh, <laughs> I don't have any clips for this episode except for that. <laughs> the one you got, you were queued up. <laughs> that was great. I wish that he had performed like he had been like Jesus. We can be heroes, and then he had like just for one day. Yeah, just oh yeah, gosh. exactly. Uh, that was actually that was another thing that got controversy was David Bowie's in this movie and oh David Bowie's weird and isn't he bisexual mm. or isn't he gay or you know and like that was the thing like David Bowie is playing touch beloved this. biblical character Pontius Pilate <laughs> yeah our favorite dude oh yeah the other uh, cameo Irving Kirshner is that his name mm-hmm. Irving Kirshner the director of the Empire Strikes Back plays Zebedee the one stoning Mary Magdalene and, oh yeah I've seen that guy in stuff <laughs> yeah. in and Scorsese's in a scene and you like you can't really recognize him but his voice is just like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cuts right through. He's a yeah. Hooded. yeah harry dean stanton is saul slash paul in that really like that that's where it got kind of like it was kind of melting my head because within the, the extended fantasy sequence he is paul preaching like this real explicit passionate uh, almost like fire and brimstone gospel of the death and resurrection of jesus christ and then jesus watching him like mm, didn't happen and then him saying like doesn't matter if it didn't happen like it's important it's almost like what you were saying about like whether something is true or not it's true yeah and him taking that to the nth degree his story's and, better yeah. yeah it's gonna it's gonna sell better it's gonna travel more jesus's message is going to go further and it's a good message so it, he but he needs to die for it to it. yeah i feel like that should be the scariest thing in this movie for christians yeah. is that like maybe jesus didn't come back to life but the story was so compelling yeah. that we wrote it down and would have kept it and that's what we believe now like i think that's the most maybe like insidious isn't the right word but like this kind of stuff like the most dangerous or like most dangerous idea idea in this movie yeah but even then they tuck it in a fantasy it's not true yeah like within the movie story and the movie ends with jesus with like kind of something analogous to a smile on his face on the cry saying it is accomplished and then you may know the answer to this is it true that when they were shooting it, the film actually did that effect. They accidentally, they only had time for one more take. The first take didn't work. And on the second take, it was perfect. It was like, like Marty, my good friend, Marty, Marty. was like, yeah, he was like, Oh, <laughs> this, this is great. He just, in the back of his head, he was like, Willem's doing everything I want. And then like the cameraman or somebody accidentally popped open the magazine and the film was exposed to the light, which of course ruins it. But like, that's the effect you see as, and it like ended up when I say this movie was obviously shot on the cheap and shot very quickly. That's the kind of thing that like could seem slapdash 
And in some places it does seem slapdash the way that this movie's thrown together. But that is like one of the most brilliant endings to a movie ever. And it's totally an accident. Isn't that amazing? I know. I'm real afraid that we're about to see like whatever, like this is like Marty Scorsese who's made masterpieces at this point, but then like operating like run and gun on the cheap, like an indie filmmaker, Mm -hmm. kind of like that Orson Welles quote, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. And I'm wondering if we're about to see the polar opposite of that in like Netflix saying, oh yeah, here's all the money for the (laughs) Irishman. Oh, you don't need a runtime that's like bearable in any meaningful (laughs) sense. Uh, And if that's going to be what we get. De-aging Robert De Niro and ugh. Yeah. yeah, aren't you aren't you excited to see CGI De Niro for four and a half? Hours? I don't want to see anyone smoothed out anymore. <laughs> and like, it's no creepy. smooth boys for you. This no is kind boys. of Scorsese's lost years. Like, he makes a lot of great movies in the '80s. He makes one hit movie in The Color of Money, which is kind of how this movie gets made. But like, he's in an era when like the blockbuster mentality is taking over Hollywood. He doesn't know how to make that kind of movie. He hasn't made a huge acclaimed thing since raging bull and like this movie kind of gets his groove back because the next movie he makes is goodfellas which reinstates him so but Mm -hmm. this you know he got nominated for the oscar for best director for this it was the movie's only nomination this is one of the only movies that's gotten nominations for both oscars and razzies (gasps) it got a razzie nomination for harvey keitel's judas which i disagree oh i think it's i think he's terrific that's that's, uh, distracting them i'm gonna kill you jesus don't make me also do you like this look or should we we don't go back. <laughs> Should we know? go back? I'm on the fence. Uh, Ke- Kevin, as a person who really cares about music, mm-hmm. as I know you are, what do you think oh. of the Peter Gabriel score? Oh, listen. I mean, it... <laughs> I was so into it. Yeah. Like not the not the stuff that feels stock to us now, which I don't know if it did back then. No, it did. Which yeah. is like drones and then someone going, ah, you know, and like whatever that is. Uh, and I hope that's not disrespectful. Tarzan? But but just like the um the the droning synth stuff and the kind of uh the anachronistic uh, template and yeah. arrangements of it, I thought were so compelling. Where uh, the score for a lot of this stuff was just like in some scenes, like I think of the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's just like a single droning synth, like one yeah. or two notes. It's not even like super dynamic or scored like to the cut or to the action. It's just like this really kind of haunting but super emotional piece. Here, I want to play some of it. Yeah, this is kind of it. Like this, there would just be long stretches of just like the synth music under it, which you don't, I don't associate sword and sandals type epics with the 80s at all. And this like kind of primarily 80s forward sound was such an interesting dichotomy in my head. Like I can square with like 60s, 70s, especially 50s stuff with Ben-Hur or even like the 300 or the Gladiator stuff in the 2000s. But uh but the fact that it's like an 80s flavor was so interesting to me. Did you like, like the music? Drive now, right? Is that the yeah. costume movie? Well, yeah, it's yeah. almost like looped around where it's like, no, this is what's kind of in. It's like in everyone doing like a Tangerine Dream mm-hmm. sort of knockoff like the Stranger Things stuff. Mm-hmm. Who does that? Who does the Stranger Things score? Suicide? Uh, Is that their name? Sia. Sia. Thanks to Sia. (laughs) Sia, who we've never called it out on this podcast... Oh, cousins with uh, Sia is Peter Furler's cousin, the lead singer of Newsboys. So two roads diverged in a yellow wood there. 
equally. Did you listen to Newsboys, Emily? I did. <laughs> uh, just the one album that had like Shine on it. Oh, um, make them wonder what you got. A lot, yeah. But like, I had like one year when I listened to a lot of Christian rock because I was like, I'm gonna show my love for God by listening to yeah. bad music. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, this music is really along the lines of like what Vangelis was doing at the time, yeah, and yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Not the sort of thing you would expect to hear in a movie like this. Yeah, like, it, not orchestral, not traditional, like 60-piece orchestra. Yeah. There was a really long argument going on in my Twitter mentions today between a guy who was like, this just doesn't sound like the Christ. And I was like, yes, it does. Yeah, because it's like emotional. Because like I, I, I associate orchestra and like the brass and the woodwinds and the strings with like pomp and circumstance and distance and scale yeah. and scope. And you associate something more like since and you imagine just like a couple of people in a closet on their keyboards is something like a lot more personal and a lot more like accessible emotionally so i think that does reflect my primary takeaway at least from the movie of just like mm. the man that jesus was and just like that guy mm -hmm. so I, I felt like it was pretty successful as a score and it's the first time i can remember like remembering a scorsese score that wasn't just like a bunch of needle drops yeah. But it was like actually music composed for the movie. Can I bring this all home? Because I think I'm gonna yeah. tie I think I'm gonna tie everything ever together from this episode. Galaxy Brain. Thank you. Please Here we this go. is gonna happen. Help. So when you were growing up in the church, did you hear about the idea of body, soul, spirit? You had a little spirit man inside of you who like was So this is what I grew up with was the idea that you had your body and your body was basically a meat suit that you lived in and like your soul was your thoughts and your ideas and your feelings and your spirit was your central self. And like when you sinned, there was like a black mark on your spirit uh, or, you know, like when you did a good thing, it was a bright mark on your spirit. And when you were saved, your spirit and your soul were sort of washed clean. You know, you talking about the passion of the Christ made me think about how that movie depicts Jesus having Jesus being a man as in essence, he is God with godly desires and God is the soul and the spirit inside this meat suit. And the only way to make the bot to punish the body is to hit it and hit it and hit it and cause tremendous pain and gouge flesh out of it. So the idea that is reinforced by that, I, by that film, but also by a lot of Christian culture is that your body is just a thing. It's just a thing that you live in and someday it's going to wear out and it's going to die and the real you is going to live on. Like I, I'm sure every, like every Christian church, mm -hmm. even the one I go to presses, uh, says some, some version of that. So the idea of transness is I think an assault to that, that sort of theory of how the body is put together because mm -hmm. it's saying, no, the body and the soul are interlinked. Like, the so the the most this is not you know this is not a me being scientific but the sort of best scientific explanation we have of trans identities is literally I have a woman's brain and it's in a man's body this is really oversimplifying and being overdidactic but I'm just doing this to get the metaphor out there so if anybody's trans is listening to this I'm sorry that I have washed away a bunch of nuances but. That's sort of literally the easiest explanation for it. But that automatically assumes that like your soul has like a physical basis. And this movie is about Jesus being a man in the flesh, but also being a man in his soul and in his spirit that whatever is godly in us, whatever is human like in Jesus is always wrestling with the other stuff, the stuff that needs to just eat food 
or wants to have sex or, um, you know, really, really, really longs to not be the gender you were assigned at birth. And we see that too much of Christian culture sees the trappings of the flesh as a failing instead of the profoundly beautiful and human thing that they are. And the idea that they can be policed and can be legislated and can be governed away is a falsity. And the church has learned that over and over and over again. And I just wish everybody would watch this movie. Hey, no better note to uh, wrap up our discussion and get to our final judgments on the last temptation of Christ. Emily, you know how this works. We give it a holy toast, holy roast, or a space between holy toast. We send Jesus to heaven. Uh, this is real complicated if we don't. Uh, Jesus, holy, I think, technically went to hell holy briefly. Ro- oh, so. yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, again, well. I remember that scene from The Passion. Holy <laughs> roast. We go down to uh, where little blonde girls are. Hell. <laughs> little blonde British girls. Or... Where Dave Matthews is waiting for everyone to join him. <laughs> Caroline, we start with you. I'll give it a holy toast. I, uh, To be honest, as I was watching it, I was uh, somewhat unimpressed and like I think also just tired. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's, uh, I guess, complicated on the first watch. And it took me a while to kind of catch on like where I was in the timeline of Jesus. Um, hence, I was just confused a lot of the time. Uh, but one thought that, I, that has stuck with me that I, I don't remember us getting to talk about was um, the... Jesus like talking about love and saying instead of an axe I'm going to do love and just keep referring back to love almost as if everyone understood what that meant even though it's clear that no one really does um just seeing it uh in that context and seeing it in a world that is probably has a lot of love but is like looks like it's mostly survival of the fittest and like there's just literal street violence going on right before he does that and and to see that it is a pretty uh, special thing to say and a pretty incendiary thing to say was nice. It was nice to see that and like remember, oh yeah, like love can sound so basic (laughs) to be honest and like so obvious. Yeah, Yeah, like love is love and love wins and all those things that that are like true, but it's nice every once in a while to like, uh, be, let the cliche be broken and like see it that way which was nice but also I was gonna say like in talking with this movie with you two uh, I my love for this movie has grown three sizes like the Grinch's heart oh, and oh, wow. I think it's great and I think all the things that you said are so right and like yeah it's a it's a wonderful little like kaleidoscope telescope into what Christianity is or could be we turn it to Emily while I love the idea of sending Jesus to hell like I think that that like like he came through last chance kitchen and it's like here to be like, I come on here man. I, like no Jesus you are going to hell um no I got I gotta go I gotta go holy uh holy toast holy toast holy yeah. toast because uh I always think of when you say that I'm always like no toasting you get toasted in the fires of hell. no you get roasted <laughs> oh, in the it's, fires it's, of hell. it's it's yeah. confusing we and bad all the time yeah. <laughs> but no i i love this movie and i've seen it this is probably my fourth or fifth time and it grows a little bit every time i watch it and like it is a movie that every year i recommend it on easter and i'm always like i should just watch it and like it's a great 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 easter movie um i recommend returning to it every few years because like you'll take something new away from it mm-hmm. every time so mm-hmm. awesome uh i will of course give it a holy toast too i'll just read my seven bullet point notes. <laughs> Being Jesus must have sucked shit. Hey, I'm walking here. That's Judas. Peter Gabriel score fucking slaps. Bowie rocks. Defoe rocks. This made me love Jesus a little more. Aww. 
So I feel like it was really, which I was not expecting. I was expecting to be like, what if? Like, you know, like a real, like. Well, uh, theoretically, this would have been different. Yeah, exactly. Like to to just like totally blow up the myth or whatever. But yeah, this was, uh, this is beautiful. And yeah, kind of a tough hang at first, especially when I saw the runtime and how, and I started late at night and then I watched it at a better hour Um, Um, the next day. I will say, if you like this movie, Scorsese's 2016 movie, Silence, which is similarly very long and similarly about the struggles of Christianity, is also a really great movie about being a Christian. Hey, so I've heard. I, a oh, buddy of mine who's like... such a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real bummer. I don't yeah. want to feel sad. <laughs> sad movie week on good Christian yeah. fun. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Maybe one of my favorite Scorsese movies, too. Definitely oh. my favorite depiction of jesus i've seen in anything oh wow yeah. like by a whole mile uh by a moonlight mile, until veggie tales finally breaks their rule they're <laughs> oh in the in the reboot of veggie tales which uh-huh. they are for real doing that they'll finally jesus depict squash. jesus it's jesus and it's like string cheese i do want to i do want to ask if you were going to marvel style do a bible cinematic universe uh-huh. uh who are your first who are your first four heroes and like when do they team up like tell me about like what your bible cinematic universe Ooh, is baby well i feel like uh iron man is paul <laughs> <laughs> oh i think paul is nick fury really yeah but i see paul as being like kind of the yeah. dick but he's kind of like the, he like codifies everything, you know? He's like the organizer. Okay, then I say Peter. Peter's Hawkeye. <laughs> Shout Peter's out. Hawkeye? R.I.P. Jeremy Renner F. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I like, now I'm pissed that I didn't know it was, I could have downloaded that. What, the Jeremy Renner app? Yeah. I know, right? Uh, Ruth Missed is definitely it. Black Widow. Ruth is Ruth is Black Widow. Uh, I want Mary Magdalene in there. Maybe she's a Scarlet Witch. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say... James and John uh-huh. are Captain America and Flash. <laughs> the fl- Flash is not listen. He's in the A movie. <laughs> um X-Men movie. The Flash? Yeah, right? Quicksilver? No, Quicksilver. Quicksilver. Okay. Yeah. It's like Greek and Roman mythology. Yeah, they're like they're kind of yeah. the same. It's all interchangeable. <laughs> Clearly, we have a great answer for this question. I really, I really Do you have any answers? It. Do you want to throw any on the ring? I think that the Guardians of the Galaxy are kind of like Noah and his family. They're oh, off in some other story, yeah, yeah. and then they intersect with like... It's Noah and yes. Noah's wife, and then the yeah. other animals are like Groot and yeah. Rocky. And, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> oh boy, but uh, listen, we're not the final word. You can vote too on whether you spend sin last temptation of Christ to hell. So get out there at Christian Fun Pod and Pokemon go to the polls. Ballers. It gets sadder every week. I know. No, I've been I've been playing that drop Ballers. for three years <laughs> consistently. Wait, were you talking about Hillary or Oh Liz? yeah. Yeah, I just mm, like yeah. mm. oh. mm. R.I.P. Ouch. <laughs> just chilling. Just chilling. I love <laughs> Wait, what did she do the other day? Oh, we were imagining if she was running now that she'd have to get on TikTok. <laughs> she'd have to recreate the girl that's like doing the choreography and crying at the same time. Like, I love TikTok. Mm, she would do will that. I drink regular water or yee yee juice. She would do that um, that thing where the cat does Mr. Sandman, but she oh, would yeah. do it with Bill, like just like Bill Clinton, yeah. just like problematic Bill Clinton. I'm so sorry. Hey. For, yeah. Well, I, I'm sure you've seen their Sopranos parody. Yeah. Good grief. We've talked about it. Yeah, They that's recreate right. the finale of the Sopranos, which for, you know, 
for that family. Hot I don't stuff. know if you want to do <laughs> invite the comparison. Uh-huh. Have you ever per heard se? her 2008 campaign song Hillary for you and me? I can remember every lyric of it. Is it Hillary Clinton is our... no. Nope. Oh, no. Hillary for you and me. Bring back our democracy. Make our country proud and free. Everyone for Hillary fighting in a war. But we don't know what we're fighting for. Like, I remember. They made a wow. jingle? All of it. Well, some people who supported her did. Oh, yeah. this wasn't a campaign no. created no. thing. Yeah. I remember in 2008, there was a ringtone you could download when Obama was just a candidate, not a two-term president, from his official website. And the song went, Obama, Obama, oh, go, 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 Obama, Obama, oh. Oh, my uh, two, 2004 Joe Lieberman Joe Lieberman You know you think he's good He's the best president For your neighborhood Joe Lieberman You know yeah. you think he's good yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> underwhelming <Yeah. laughs> uh, My parents love Selling Joe Selling himself Lieberman. short <laughs> Yeah uh, It's time to dim the lights Bring it down And uh, abstain from promoting ourselves And our projects But lifting them up to the Lord Caroline we'll start with you you can lift me up at Caroline's Forts on Twitter and Instagram. I don't have a lift up this week, unfortunately, so forget me. Thank you, Caroline. We turn it to Emily. <laughs> yeah, I want to lift up my own social media presence, not to glorify myself, but to glorify you by following Amen. me. I'm at TVOTI on Twitter, uh, Instagram, probably Facebook. No, I'm at M. Vanderwerf on Facebook. Don't add me on Facebook. I'm not fun there. Don't do it. But uh, you can add me at TVOTI on Twitter and Instagram. Um, You can check out my work at Vox.com. You can uh, listen to my podcast, Primetime, the first season recently completed. It's about the presidency's intersection with television. I also have an older podcast called I Think You're Interesting that uh, we're talking about doing new seasons of both. So just go listen to them because it would really help me if the numbers were good so we (laughs) could do more. Um, I have another podcast called uh, Arden. It's a scripted true crime satire uh, that has some terrific actors. We've been nominated for a number of Avi Awards, the Audioverse Awards. Uh, the complete first season is available on Podcatchers now. And finally, I have a book that just came out in paperback. Hey. Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files is out in paperback and under my right name instead of some old name I don't use anymore that nobody can trust because it's a name that nobody can trust. Do you um, think I'm older and Caroline Scully? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think so, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might be like Fluke Man, but... Yeah. Whoa, fluke, man. Come on. Um, and I want to lift up the work of the trans journalist, Caitlin Burns, who is doing some of the best work covering the intersection of uh, radical trans exclusionary radical feminists and conservative Christians and the ways that they are attempting to change and influence policy. Her explain- explainer on this in my own publication box is a must read if you don't understand these issues. Hey, wow. thank you, Emily. Uh, you can lift me up at Kevin T. Port everywhere. I'll lift up, I mentioned him before, but Austin Harkey and his work uh, in the book Transformed, I think is like a really valuable resource for everyone. He also has a YouTube channel where he just like does, because he went to seminary and has a great perspective on all this stuff as a trans man himself. Uh, And he'll do stuff that's like not even specific to like, so as trans people, but just do like 
just biblical scholarship and he's kind of a nerd for that stuff. So I feel like he's a really excellent resource for people who want to become more educated about this stuff. And I'll lift up Emily too. This was a really special episode for us and, and we really appreciate you coming on. I feel like a lot of the core of this show is people who grew up in evangelical culture and us just kind of saying through bad jokes and terrifying sound drops assuring people that they're okay and they're not alone and i think your story does that for a lot of people thank so you. thank you for oh, sharing it that. i appreciate that i am really glad that i also told the last time i was on i began the terrible reign of mood rings <laughs> that's right <laughs> that was i was the first mood rings person there's still ripples coming out <laughs> i'm that, really glad that i didn't do that for you this week um <laughs> are you gonna take us out with mood rings well should i I guess I have. Uh, if you to. want to trigger me, <laughs> whoa! I mean, I'm even more offended by it now. So. We could we could do we yeah. could do a, a, a Christian song that you like instead. Oh boy, um, I love the uh, song by Reverend Clay Evans. I've got a testimony. It's a gospel song that I just wonderful. Love. Let's take a listen to it. All right, and there's nothing left to say except for in all of Pods, people said, Amen. Amen. Testimony. Uh oh. There it is. Uh-oh. This is it? Yeah. But is there a version of this with uh, Elmo and Big Bird doing the motion? <laughs> Call me when the Sesame Street game is a There is a version where, you know, the count comes in. <laughs> wow! I count a testimony! <laughs> The version on Spotify is like 11 minutes long, so. Oh my yep, God. this is 1121. Amazing. And we'll listen to it for the rest of the episode. <laughs> okay, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. That was a HeadGum Podcast.